Well, good morning. Uh, it is our privilege to be able to, uh, to share with you a little bit this morning what uh, God has been doing in our high school group, and I hope that uh, that rubs off a little bit for you. Um, as Caleb said, in the high school group, we've been studying the book of Acts for four years, it's true, and uh, we're currently in the middle of chapter 15. And uh, just in the remaining time we have here this morning, I want to share just a little bit with you regarding one of the major themes that we've seen in the book of Acts, and that is how God interferes in the lives of his people. So if you would, please turn to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to kind of camp out there um, for the rest of the morning. Acts chapter 9, and if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says this. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, And it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And Lord, we just come to you this morning, and uh, God, we are in awe of who you are, and and, uh, God, we recognize you as the king of the universe and the one who has his way with us. And God, you've called us to submit to you and to bow our knee before you. And God, I pray that as we come to understand more about how you work in our lives, God, that we would have a longing for you to interfere in our lives, for you to move in our lives, and that we would be not only submitting to that, but wanting that in our lives. And God, we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. God's interference in our lives. This is different than God's intervention in our lives. Now, we're very familiar with the idea of asking God to intervene on our behalf, aren't we? Anytime something goes wrong, we ask for God's intervention. But beyond the times when we desperately need divine help, our desires for God's interference in our lives tend to be very weak, if anything at all. But there may be no better example of the goodness of God's interference in our lives than what we see here in Acts chapter 9. So let's set the stage for Acts 9. We actually go back to the end of uh, Acts chapter 7, which Caleb uh, was referring to in speaking about Stephen. And there at the end of uh, Acts 7, we see Stephen preaching, and uh, his, his preaching indicts the Jewish religious and political leaders and uh, indicts them for the actual crucifixion of the Son of God. And based on that, we see in verses 54 through 60, we see the response of those leaders and that they stone Stephen and and, uh, he is killed. And then we come to chapter 8 in verse 1, and it says, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here's our, our stage that we have set for uh, going into, uh, into chapter 9. Things looked bad for the church. Things looked bad for the Christians. Now, what do you think might have been the attitude of the Christians, of the church at that time? 
I could imagine it would be easy for them to kind of fall into a bit of a fatalistic attitude of thinking that we're resigned to a dark future and there's, there's little hope. We're being persecuted from all angles and we're being scattered all around and one of our leaders, Stephen, has just been stoned to death and here's this guy, Saul, coming along and uh, he looks like he's up to nothing good as far as it relates to us. Their future didn't look good and, and they could be fatalistic. Peering into our future today, it's maybe easy to have the same kind of attitude, the same kind of perspective. You know, the persistent downturn of the American economy leading to all kinds of financial woes and worries can give us a dark view of what could happen in our lives. Or Our nation seems to be ever more turning its back on God, refusing to recognize Jesus in his rightful place as Lord. On an individual level, maybe you're worried about a friend or a family member or yourself with regard to health issues or sickness. Or maybe you're worried about people around you who don't know the Lord and they seem to be so far from being able to respond to the gospel. And your greatest desire is to see them do that, and there just seems to be no hope. From a human perspective, we can fall victim to a fatalistic view that's steeped in an independent, self-determining spirit. Here's the good news. God intervenes. Not only does he intervene, God interferes. God interferes. So here as we come to chapter 9 and verse 1, the church is being persecuted. They've been scattered throughout the region. And things are getting worse. The persecution of the church is personified in the person of Saul. It says here in in chapter 9, verse 1, Saul's still breathing threats and murders against the disciples. Saul is breathing threats and murders. His hatred of Christians is the very air that he breathes. It consumed him in a life-sustaining kind of way. Figuratively speaking, we have flames coming through from his nostrils and smoke coming from his ears when he thinks of Christians. Saul did not have anything good to think about Christians. His hatred was all-consuming toward the Christians. And then he goes, and he goes to the, uh, to the high priest, and in verse 2 it says he asked for letters from the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to, to Jerusalem. Saul goes to, to the, the religious leaders, and he gets, he gets permission. He gets the authority to go and to, to arrest and to take the Christians and to, and to bring them bound and, and uh, basically to have his way with the Christians. So not only was he operating out of his own personal hatred for the, for the Christians, but he had the, he had the authority behind him to go and to act on that hatred. This would be a bit like Osama bin Laden today, looking to obliterate Christians and Jews off the face of the earth. You can think of, of Saul at that time. He, he, he was consumed and he, he would do whatever was within his power to take out the Christians. He hated them. His hatred was steeped in his religious accomplishments and his identity as a Jew. Later, after he was, he was transformed and he became the Apostle Paul, he wrote this in Philippians 3. He said, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul is saying, look, if anybody had their life together, it was me. I had things dialed in. I was from the right tribe. I had, I was, I, I had my life worked all out. I followed the law. Paul said, Paul, Paul's identity, the basis of who he was, his, his, uh, his purpose in life, you could even say his joy in life, was based on his identity, on what he had accomplished and who he was. And Christianity threatened that because the basis of Christianity pulls all that away. 
It calls people to place their identity in Jesus' work on the cross, not in their own work. And so you can see how Christianity was a serious threat to Saul. And this is the same basis for much hatred of Christianity today, that it threatens the way that people live. For many, though, it's, it's a little more subtle than in-your-face hatred. This attitude is a roadblock to the truth. For many, your, your pride demands that uh, your self-dependence and your self-determination be what guides you, what defines you. God-dependence, therefore, is a, is a threat to your life. Depending on God threatens everything about who you are. It's exactly the opposite of self-dependence, self-determination. If that's true for you today, I hope that God interferes in your life, even today. I hope that he interferes by giving you illumination like we're about to see here with Saul in Acts chapter 9. If you look at verse 3, it says, And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus confronts Saul. Can you imagine? Here's Saul cruising along. He's got fire coming out of his nose, smoke coming out of his ears. This guy is is one angry guy. He is on his way to take care of those Christians. He hates the Christians because they follow this Jesus, and he's riding along, and all of a sudden, this light appears. He hears this voice out of heaven. He's knocked off of his donkey. He's on the ground, and he's saying, who is this? And and the voice says, this is Jesus who you're persecuting. Can you imagine how, how Saul might have felt in that situation? He fell to the ground, And in an instant, he came face to face with a brand new reality. Saul's life was turned completely upside down in that moment. He faces that light, and everything that he had believed changed in that moment, because now here he is encountering God, the Son, encountering Jesus. Suddenly, he sees Jesus in a whole new way. His perception of Jesus must have been elevated immediately to massive heights. And where was Saul? He was on the ground. Right, I'd imagine that he was as low as he could get to the ground. If you can picture this scene in your mind, that he's seeing this light and he's hearing this voice and Saul is on the ground and he recognizes, I believe, immediately that, that this is Jesus, the one true God. In the presence of the holiness and majesty of Jesus, in the form of this blinding light and this, this booming voice, Saul's experience had to be something like Isaiah's in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah came face to face with Jesus in the temple, and what was Isaiah's response there in Isaiah chapter 6? As he comes face to face with Jehovah God and Jesus sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah acutely and immediately felt the intensity of his own sin in his life. And I believe that Paul, or Saul at this time, would have had a similar experience. He comes face to face with Jesus. He's on the ground, and I believe that he saw Jesus Magnificent and majestic and exalted, and he saw himself as a sinner on the ground before him. I have no doubt that his sin became overwhelmingly and abundantly clear to him. His self-dependence and his self-determination, he now saw as sin. To Saul, Jesus was elevated. Saul's vision of himself was accurate for the very first time, and I'm sure that he felt the weight of his sin driving him into the ground. And I believe that it's this gap that Saul all of a sudden became really clear with that is what made him useful for the Lord in, for the rest of his life. This gap that he saw Jesus exalted way up high. He saw Jesus very, very big. 
and he saw himself down low, very, very small. And the size of that gap between how high we see Jesus and how low we see ourselves can only be filled by the cross. And the size of that cross that we see is directly proportional, I believe, to our own sanctification, our own holiness, as God works in us, as we depend on having nothing else to bridge that gap but the cross, and our love of the cross grows, and as a result, we are made more holy as God works in us through that love of the cross, and he's able to use us and work through us in that way. Paul was so used by God, I believe, in large part because that gap between his perception of God and himself was immense from the very moment that he met God. Jesus interfered with Saul's life in a massive way. One minute, he's cruising along, breathing threats and murder, and the next minute, he's down on the ground, and he's blind. Verse 6, Jesus continues speaking, and he says, But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. He's not given a choice. He doesn't have any options. Jesus commands him what to do. This is a sign of true regeneration, transformation resulting from real-life conversion, obedience to Jesus. Jesus is the one whom Saul was persecuting, and now he suddenly obeys. Jesus gives him a command. Paul, or Saul, obeys. Verse 7 and 8, it says, And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. You see that contrast? Here we have mighty Saul cruising along, ready to go pound those Christians, and he's going to enter Jerusalem full of bluster and vigor and, and, and intensity to take it out on those Christians. And how does he enter? He enters blind and broken and humbled, led by the hand like a child. You know, I imagine that, uh, that Saul had a really good understanding of what James wrote in James chapter 4 when he said, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. And this comes around the heels of where he says, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. James is saying, Look, you can make these plans. I'm going to go do this like that, but your, your, your life is like a vapor and, and it can be changed in an instant. And that's exactly what happened to, to Saul. He had these plans and God redirected him. God interfered in his life in a pretty amazing way right out the gate. It's interesting that uh, Paul or Saul and, uh, uh, and James, their lives intersected there in, in Acts chapter 15. And uh, I wonder if, if they kind of talked about this a little bit. And, and uh, Paul at that time would be sharing with James and say, hey, you know, this is, uh, James would have probably known, but this is what happened in my life. I was doing this and God interfered and changed it. And now here's what happened in my life. And I wonder if that was that conversation, maybe, I'm just speculating here, but maybe that was in the back of James' mind as he was inspired to write his letter talking about how we can make our plans, but God can interfere and change. Verse 9, it says, And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, and a man named Ananias, uh, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered. He knew the reputation of Saul. He says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God interfered in Saul's life to bring him salvation. 
But he interfered for reasons beyond that. He was making him a chosen instrument for a specific purpose, to bear the name of Jesus. And from the beginning, note this, from the beginning of Saul's conversion, God's interference held the intention that he would suffer. God interfered with Saul's life with the intention that Saul would suffer. It says there in verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God intended that Paul would suffer. Now you may say, wait a minute. I'm not sure I want God to interfere in my life in that way. I'm not sure I'm all that excited about suffering. If you're honest, that's certainly what I would say. I'm, I'm not excited about God interfering in that way. But sometimes that's exactly what we should want. We should long for God's hand to interfere in our lives continually. His interference is the basis for our salvation, and it's the foundation for us from turning from our hell-bound ways to eternal life. He interferes in our lives for His ultimate praise and for His ultimate glory, and this is accomplished through us as sanctified, holy people who are obedient to Him. And just look real quickly here at at Romans chapter 8, a verse that you're uh, well familiar with, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose. You might think of that as those on whose behalf he interferes. God causes all things to work together for good for those on whose behalf he interferes. And then look at uh, verse 29. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. If you're called according to his purpose, if God interferes on your life to bring you to salvation, his purpose in doing that is to bring you to conformity of the image of his son. That's the whole point of your salvation, that you reflect Jesus and you reflect the image of his son, and as a result, that you bring God glory through your your reflection of Jesus in your lives, that you're reflecting him. Now notice there in in Romans chapter 8, it continues on there that he might become the firstborn among many brethren verse 30 and whom he predestined those he also called whom he called he also justified and whom he justified these he also glorified verse 31 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us we have nothing to fear in life God is for us God is for us he is for us in his resolution to interfere in our lives in whatever way necessary to bring us to glory, to bring us to holiness as instruments in his hands to be used by him for his purposes. And there's no greater joy in life than to be used by the creator for the very purpose in which you're created. That is the basis of all joy in our lives is to be used by the creator for the purpose that we were created. And so our promise that we have is that if God is for us, who can be against us? And God is for us to bring us to glory, to bring us to sanctification, to bring us to holiness. This is why Paul, knowing the suffering that God's interference in his life, when Paul, knowing the suffering that God's interference in his life brought to him, he could say this in Philippians 3, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. In Paul's estimation, no price was too high to be paid for the privilege of knowing Jesus. All the suffering was more than worth it. Look at how Paul responded back in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse uh, 20. Uh, It says, And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. 
Paul immediately began preaching Jesus. And he was heading for suffering. And it didn't stop him. He was preaching Jesus. Now get this in your mind. This would be the equivalent of Osama bin Laden showing up in Jerusalem today preaching Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the scene if Osama bin Laden all of a sudden is showing up on CNN preaching the gospel? And what would be the response of all those that he currently leads? They'd be kill Osama. But it wouldn't be the Americans or anybody else wanting to kill him. It would be all the people he's currently leading. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. Or to Saul turning into Paul. There in verse 23 it says, And when when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. And their plot became known to Saul, and they, were as, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by the night, and they led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Saul, the hunter, had become the hunted. Things had dramatically changed. You think that Paul understood exactly what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 when he said, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Paul went from seeing the cross as foolishness to the power of God in an instant. But Paul's suffering was immediate, and Paul understood what Jesus meant when he said, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus didn't come to the world, come into the world to bring bread. He came into the world to be bread. Our satisfaction, therefore, is in him, not in what we may or may not get from him, but he is our bread. Our satisfaction is in him. It's in knowing him. It's in being right with him. That's where our satisfaction is. And that's what Paul understood so clearly. His satisfaction, his joy, his peace was in knowing Jesus, not what was going on around him. And that's why he could go and he could serve the Lord with abandon because nothing else mattered. All that mattered was that he knew Jesus. Our eternal joy is based on finding our ultimate satisfaction in Jesus, in knowing Jesus. And God will go to great lengths to interfere in our lives so that we will understand that, so we will know that more clearly. Sometimes he does that by intervening on our behalf and showing his greatness through his miraculous power and his gracious gifting. And we we see this here continuing through the rest of Acts chapter 9. And verse 34, uh, Peter, uh, through Jesus, heals a paralyzed man. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 40, through Peter, Jesus raises a woman from the dead. That we see these miracles that God is, is bringing to people to show their, their need for him and that their ultimate life satisfaction is in Jesus through these miracles that he does. But sometimes God interferes in other ways. And he shows us that he's more than enough when we have nothing else. He's more than enough. He is our satisfaction. Knowing Jesus is our satisfaction. You see, we shouldn't be fatalistic about any situation. God interferes. God changes things. God still does that. He changes our direction. He changes the lives of people. He changes circumstances. But he changes them for the purpose of helping us to understand that our total and complete satisfaction and joy is in knowing him and nothing else. May we long for God to interfere in our lives in any way that would bring us to see greater and greater satisfaction in Jesus. Lord, we come to you today and, and uh, we're humbled by what you have already done in our lives, God, that you would send your son Jesus to die on our behalf, to pay a price that we could not pay. And God, as we, uh, as we come to you this morning, I pray that you would just give us clarity and understanding the greatness of who you are and that our satisfaction and our joy is found only in you and in nothing else. And that you would interfere in our lives in whatever way necessary to help us to find greater and greater satisfaction in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.